0: Section 10 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, a study of the forms of life, thought, and art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huitzinger, Translated by Frederick Jan Hopman Chapter 8 Love Formalized When in the twelfth century unsatisfied desire was placed by the troubadours of Provence in the center of the poetic conception of love, an important turn in the history of civilization was effected. Antiquity, too, had sung the sufferings of love, but it had never conceived them save as the expectation of happiness or as its pitiful frustration the sentimental point of pyramus and thisbe of cephalus and procris lies in their tragic end in the heartrending loss of a happiness already enjoyed courtly poetry on the other hand makes desire itself the essential motif and so creates a conception of love with a negative ground-note without giving up all connection with sensual love the new poetic ideal was capable of embracing all kinds of ethical aspirations love now became the field where all moral and cultural perfection flowered because of his love the courtly lover is pure and virtuous the spiritual element dominates more and more till towards the end of the thirteenth century the doce of dante and his friends ends by attributing to love the gift of bringing about a state of piety and holy intuition here an extreme had been reached italian poetry was gradually to find its way back to a less exalted expression of erotic sentiment petrarch is divided between the ideal of spiritualized love and the more natural charm of antique models soon the artificial system of courtly love is abandoned and its subtle distinctions will not be revived when the Platonism of the Renaissance, latent already in the courtly conception, gives rise to new forms of erotic poetry with a spiritual tendency. In France, the evolution of erotic culture was more complicated. The idea of courtly love was not to be supplanted so easily there. The system is not given up, but the forms are filled by new values. Even before Dante had found the eternal harmony of his Vita Nuova, the roman de la rose had inaugurated a novel phase of erotic thought in france the work begun before twelve forty by guillaume de loris was finished before twelve eighty by jean few books have exercised a more profound and enduring influence on the life of any period than the roman of the rose its popularity lasted for two centuries at least it determined the aristocratic conception of love in the expiring middle ages by reason of its encyclopedic range it became the treasure-house whence lay society drew the better part of its erudition the existence of an upper class whose intellectual and moral notions are enshrined in an ars amandi, remains a rather exceptional fact in history in no other epoch did the ideal of civilization amalgamate to such a degree with that of love Just as scholasticism represents the grand effort of the medieval spirit to unite all philosophic thought in a single center, so the theory of courtly love, in a less elevated sphere, tends to embrace all that appertains to the noble life. The Roman de la Rose did not destroy the system, it only modified its tendencies and enriched its contents. To formalize love is the supreme realization of the aspiration to the life beautiful of which we traced above both the ceremonial and the heroic expression more than in pride and in strength beauty is found in love to formalize love is moreover a social necessity a need that is the more imperious as life is more ferocious love has to be elevated to the height of a right the overflowing violence of passion demands it Only by constructing a system of forms and rules for the vehement emotions can barbarity be escaped. The brutality and license of the lower classes was always fervently, but never very efficiently, repressed by the church. The aristocracy could feel less dependent on religious admonition, because they had a piece of culture of their own from which to draw their standards of conduct, namely courtesy literature fashion and conversation here formed the means to regulate and refine erotic life if they did not altogether succeed they at least created the appearance of an honorable life of courtly love for in reality the sexual life of the higher classes remained surprisingly rude in the erotic conceptions of the Middle Ages, two diverging currents are to be distinguished. Extreme indecency showing itself freely in customs as in literature contrasts with an excessive formalism bordering on prudery. Chastelin mentions frankly how the Duke of Burgundy, waiting an English embassy at Valenciennes, reserves the baths of the town for them and for all their retinue. Quote, Baths provided with everything required for the calling of Venus, to take by choice and by election what they liked best, and all at the expense of the Duke. Charles the Bold was reproached with his continence, which was thought unbecoming in a prince. At the royal or princely courts of the fifteenth century, marriage feasts were accompanied by all sorts of licentious pleasantries, a usage which had not disappeared two centuries later in froissart's narrative of the marriage of charles sixth with isabella of bavaria we hear the obscene grinning of the court deschamps dedicates to antoine de bourgogne an epithalium of extreme indecency a certain rhymer makes a lascivious ballad at the request of the lady of burgundy and of all the ladies such customs seem to be absolutely opposed to the constraint and the modesty imposed by courtesy the same circles who showed so much shamelessness in sexual relations professed to venerate the ideal of courtly love. Are we to look for hypocrisy in their theory or for cynical abandonment of troublesome forms in their practice? We should rather picture to ourselves two layers of civilization superimposed, coexisting though contradictory side by side with the courtly style of literary and rather recent origin the primitive forms of erotic life kept all their force for a complicated civilization like that of the closing middle ages could not but be heir to a crowd of conceptions motives erotic forms which now collided and now blended the whole of the epithalamic genre may be considered as a heritage of a remote past in primitive culture marriage and nuptials form but one single sacred rite converging in the mystery of copulation afterwards the church by transferring the sacred element of marriage to the sacrament reserved the mystery for itself leaving its accessories to which it objected to develop freely as popular practices thus the epithalamic apparatus though stripped of its sacred character nevertheless kept its importance as the main element in the nuptial feasts thriving there more freely than ever licentious expression and gross symbolism were essential to it the church was powerless to bridle them neither catholic discipline nor reformed puritanism could do away with the quasi publicity of the marriage bed which remained in vogue well into the seventeenth century it is therefore from an ethnological point of view as survivals that we have to regard the mass of obscenities equivocal sayings and lascivious symbols which we meet in the civilization of the middle ages they were the remains of mysteries that had degenerated into games and amusements evidently the people of that epoch did not feel that in taking pleasure in them they were infringing the prescriptions of the courtly code they felt themselves on different soil where courtesy was not current it would be an exaggeration to say that in erotic literature the whole comic genre is derived from the epithalamium certainly the indecent tale the farce and the lascivious song had long formed a genre of their own of which the forms of expression were liable to but little variation obscene allegory predominates every trade lent itself to this treatment the literature of the time abounds in symbolism borrowed from the tournament the chase or music but most popular of all was the religious travesty of erotic matters besides the grossly comic style of the sans nouvelle nouvelle, punning with homonymous words like saint and saint or using in an obscene sense the words for blessing and confession erotic ecclesiastical allegory took a more refined form the poets of the circle of charles d'orleans compared their amorous sadness to the sufferings of the ascetic and the martyr they call themselves les amoureux de l'observance, alluding to the severe reform which the Franciscan Order had just undergone. Charles d'Orléans begins one of his pieces: quote, "Ce sont ici les dix commandements, vrais Dieu d'amour." These are the Ten Commandments, true God of love. End quote. Or lamenting his dead love, he says: quote, "J'ai fait l'obsèque de Madame." Dedans le moustier amoureux et le service pour son âme a chanté pensée douloureux mes sièges de soupirs piteux ont été en son luminaire aussi j'ai fait la tombe faire de regrets i have celebrated the obsequies of my lady in the church of love and the service for her soul was sung by dolorous thought many tapers of pitiful sighs have burned in her illumination also i had the tomb made of regrets all the effects of a sweet and melancholy burlesque are found together in that very tender and pure poem of the end of the century called *La Main rendu cordelier de l'observance d'Amour*, which describes the reception of an inconsolable lover in the convent of amorous martyrs it is as though erotic poetry even in this perverse way strove to recover that primitive connection with sacred matters of which the Christian religion had bereft it. French authors like to oppose l'esprit gaulois to the conventions of courtly love, as the natural conception and expression opposed to the artificial. Now the former is no less a fiction than the latter. Erotic thought never acquires literary value, save by some process of transfiguration of complex and painful reality into illusionary forms the whole genre of les sans nouvelles nouvelles and the loose song with its wilful neglect of all the natural and social complications of love with its indulgence toward the lies and egotism of sexual life and its vision of a never-ending lust implies no less than the screwed-up system of courtly love an attempt to substitute for reality the dream of a happier life it is once more the aspiration towards the life sublime but this time viewed from the animal side it is an ideal all the same even though it be that of unchastity reality at all times has been worse and more brutal than the refined aestheticism of courtesy would have it be but also more chaste than it is represented to be by the vulgar genre which is wrongly regarded as realism as an element of literary culture the genre gaulois could only occupy a secondary place, because erotic poetry is only fit to beauty life, and to serve as a source of inspiration and imitation, insofar as it takes for its themes not sexual intercourse itself, but the possibility of happiness, the promise, desire, languor, expectation. Only thus will it be capable of expressing all the different shadings of love, and of treating it equally from the sad and from the merry side by introducing into love's domain the concepts of honour courage fidelity and all the other elements of moral life it will be of far greater aesthetic and ethical value the roman de la rose by combining the passionate character of its sensuous central theme with all the elaborate fancy of the system of courtly love satisfied the needs of erotic expression of a whole age in this veritable treasure-house of amorous doctrine Ritual and legend, systematic and complete, the encyclopedic spirit of the thirteenth century had poured itself out, as it did in the sterner work of a Vincent of Beauvais. The extraordinary influence of the book could not but be heightened by its ambiguous nature. The work of two poets, of different trends of thought, it joined. It would be more correct to say it juxtaposed the courtly conception of love and sensual cynicism of the most daring kind. Texts could be found in it, for all purposes. Guillaume de Loris had given it charm of form and tenderness of accent. The background of vernal landscape, the bizarre and yet harmonious imagery of allegorical figures are his work. As soon as the lover has approached the wall of the mysterious garden of love, the allegorical system is unfolded. Dame Leisure opens the gate for him, Gaiety conducts the dance, Amour holds by the hand beauty— who is accompanied by wealth, liberality, frankness, courtesy, and youth. After having locked the heart of his vassal, Amor enumerates to him the blessings of love called hope, sweet thought, sweet speech, sweet look. Then, when Belacueil, the son of courtesy, invites him to come and see the roses, danger, malbouche, fear, and shame come to chase him away. The dramatic struggle commences— reason comes down from its high tower and venus appears upon the scene the text of guillaume de loris ends in the middle of the crisis jean chopinel or clopinel or de who finished the work adding much more than he found sacrificed the harmony of the composition to his fondness for psychological and social analysis the conquest of the castle of the roses is drowned in a continual flood of digressions speculations and examples the sweet breeze of guillaume de loris was followed by the east wind of chilling scepticism and cruel cynicism of his successor the vigorous and trenchant spirit of the second tarnished the naive and lightsome idealism of the first jean de meun is an enlightened man who believes neither in spectres nor in sorcerers neither in faithful love nor in the chastity of woman who has an inkling of the problems of mental pathology and puts into the mouths of venus nature and genius the most daring apology for sensuality venus requested by her son to come to his aid swears not to leave a single woman chaste and makes amor and the whole army of assailants take the same vow as regards men nature occupied in her smithy with her task of preserving the various species her eternal struggle against death complains that of all creatures man alone transgresses her commandments by abstaining from procreation she charges genius her priest to go and hurl at love's army nature's anathema on those who despise her laws in sacerdotal dress a taper in his hand genius pronounces the sacrilegious excommunication in which the boldest sensualism blends with refined mysticism virginity is condemned hell is reserved for those who do not observe the commandments of nature and of love for the others the flowered field where the white sheep led by jesus the lamb born of the virgin crop the incorruptible grass in endless daylight at the close genius throws the taper into the besieged fortress its flame sets the universe on fire venus also throws her torch then shame and fear flee the castle is taken and bel accueil allows the lover to pluck the rose here then in the roman de la rose the sexual motif is again placed in the centre of erotic poetry but enveloped by symbolism and mystery and presented in the guise of saintliness it is impossible to imagine a more deliberate defiance of the christian ideal the dream of love had taken a form as artistic as it was passionate the profusion of allegory satisfied all the requirements of medieval imagination these personifications were indispensable for expressing the finer shades of sentiments erotic terminology to be understood could not dispense with these graceful puppets people used these figures of danger evil mouth etc As the accepted terms of a scientific psychology, the passionate character of the central motif prevented tediousness and pedantry. In theory, the Roman de la Rose does not deny the ideal of courtesy. The garden of delights is inaccessible except to the elect, regenerated by love. He who wants to enter must be freed from all hatred, felony, villainy, avarice, envy, sadness, hypocrisy, poverty, and old age." but the positive qualities he has to oppose to these are no longer ethical as in the system of courtly love but simply of an aristocratic character they are leisure pleasure gaiety love beauty wealth liberality frankness and courteousness they are no longer so many perfections brought about by the sacredness of love but simply the proper means to conquer the object desired for the veneration of idealized womanhood jean chopinel substituted a cruel contempt for its feebleness now whatever influence the roman de la rose may have exercised on the minds of men it did not succeed in completely destroying the older conception of love side by side with the glorification of seduction professed by the rose the glorification of the pure and faithful love of the knight maintained its ground both in lyrical poetry and in the romance of chivalry not to speak of the fantasy of tournaments and passages of arms towards the end of the fourteenth century the question which of the two conceptions of love should be held by the perfect nobleman provoked a literary dispute such as french taste loved in later centuries also the noble Bussico had made himself the champion of true courtesy by composing with his travelling companions the livre des in which he called on the wits of the court to decide between the honest and self-denying service of a single lady and fashionable flirtation knights or poets who like boussicot honoured the old ideal of courtesy were vaunted as models Haute de Granson and louis de sancerre among others christine de pisan took part in the dispute by posing as the intrepid advocate of female honour her Epistre au dieu d'amour formulated the complaints of women about all the deceit and insults of men with serious indignation she denounces the doctrine of the roman de la rose then the multitude of fervent admirers of jean de Meun appeared upon the scene among them were men of very varying spiritual bent even ecclesiastics the debate lasted for years the nobility and the court took it up as a means of amusement encouraged perhaps by the praise of christine de pisan for his defence of ideal courtesy had already founded his ordre de l'escu vert à la dame blanche for the defence of oppressed women when the duke of burgundy eclipsed him by founding in paris at the hôtel d'artois on february fourteenth fourteen o one a court of love on a very splendid scale philippe le Hardy, the old diplomat whom one would have supposed to be occupied with affairs of a very different nature and louis de bourbon had begged the king to institute a court of love to furnish some distraction during an epidemic of the plague which raged at paris to spend part of the time more graciously and in order to find awakening of new joy the cause of chivalry triumphed in the form of a literary salon the court was founded on the virtues of humility and of fidelity to the honour, praise, and commendation, and service of all noble ladies. The members were provided with illustrious titles. The two founders and the king were called the Grand Conservateurs. Among the conservateurs, we find Jean-Saint-Peur, his brother Antoine, and his six-years-old son Philippe. A certain Pierre d'Hauteville from Hainaut was Prince of Love, there were also ministers, auditors, knights of honour, knights-treasurers, counsellors, masters of the chase, squires of love, etc. Burgers and lower clergy were admitted side by side with princes and prelates. The business of the court much resembled that of a rhetorical chamber. Refrains were set to be worked up into ballades couronnées ou chapelées, songs, sirventois, complaints, rondelles, lays, virulets, etc. There were debates, in the form of amorous lawsuits, to defend different opinions. The ladies distributed the prizes, and poems attacking the honour of women were forbidden. In this pompous and grave apparatus of a graceful amusement, one cannot help feeling the effect of Burgundian style beginning to influence the French court itself. It is equally obvious that the royal court, archaic like all courts, must declare in favour of the ancient and severe ideal of love, and that the seven hundred known members of the club were far from conforming their practice to it. By what is known of their habits, the great lords of that epoch were rather strange protectors of female honour. The most curious fact is that we find there the same persons who, in the debate about love, had defended the Roman de la Rose and attacked Christine de Pisan. Evidently, it was merely a society amusement." the intimate circle of jean de meun's admirers consisted of men in the service of princes both priests and laymen it is identical with that of the first french humanists one of them jean de montreuil provost of lille secretary to the dauphin and later to the duke of burgundy was the author of a good many ciceronian epistles and like his friends gontier and pierre col he corresponded with Nicolas de clemange and gave censure of the abuses in the church we now find him devoting his talents to the defence of the roman de la rose and of its author jean de Meun. he asserts that several of the most learned and enlightened men honour the roman de la rose so much that their appreciation resembles a cult ut colorant, and that they would rather do without their shirt than this book he exhorts his friends to undertake its defence like himself Quote, the more i study he writes to one of the detractors the gravity of the mysteries and the mystery of the gravity of this profound and famous work of master jean Mun, the more i am astonished at your disapprobation he himself will defend it to his last breath and many others will serve this cause with words and deeds the conviction with which jean de montreuil speaks seems already to indicate that the question of love after all involved graver issues than those of a court amusement and this is further proved by the fact that jean Gerson, the illustrious chancellor of the university took part in the quarrel he hated the roman de la rose with implacable hatred the book seemed to him to be the most dangerous pest the source of all immorality in his works he reverts again and again to the pernicious influence of the vicious Romant of the rose if he had a copy and it was the only one and worth a thousand pounds he would rather burn it than sell it to be published when pierre Coll had refuted one of gerson's polemical writings the latter replied by a treatise against the roman de la rose which was more bitter than his former denunciations he dated it from my study on the evening of the 18th of May, 1402. Quote. Following the example of the author of the Roman de la Rose, he gave his treatise the form of an allegoric vision. Awakening one morning, he feels his soul flying far away, quote, using the feathers and the wings of various thoughts, from one place to another to the sacred court of Christianity, quote, where he hears the complaints of chastity addressed to justice, conscience, and wisdom about the fool of love, that is to say Jean de Meun, who has chased her from the earth with all her train. The good guardians of chastity are precisely the evil personages of the rose, shame, fear, and danger. Quote, the good porter, who would not dare, who would not deign, to sanction even an impure kiss or dissolute look, or attractive smile, or light speech. End quote. Chastity overwhelms the fool of love with reproaches. The fool rails at marriage and monastic life. He teaches, quote, how all young girls should sell their persons early and dearly, without fear and without shame, and that they should make light of deceit and perjury. End quote he directs the fancy exclusively to carnal desire and top all perversity in the speeches of venus of nature and of damn reason he blends conceptions of paradise and of the mysteries of the faith with those of sensual pleasure there in truth was the peril this imposing work with its mixture of sensuality scoffing cynicism and elegant symbolism infused a voluptuous mysticism into the mind which to an austere man was simply an abyss of sin had not gerson's adversary dared to affirm that only the fool of love could judge of the value of passion he who does not know it sees it only as in a glass to him it remains a riddle such was the use he had made for his sacrilegious purposes of the holy words of st paul pierre Coll had not scrupled to affirm that the song of solomon was composed in honour of the daughter of pharaoh those who have defamed the roman de la rose he declared have bent their knees before baal nature does not wish that a woman should be content with one single man and the genius of nature is god he carried his blasphemy so far as to show from the Gospel of St. Luke that formerly a woman's genitals, the rose of the romance, were sacred. Being convinced of the truth of this impious mysticism, he appealed to the friends of the book, forming a cloud of witnesses, and predicted that Gerson himself would fall madly in love, as had happened to other theologians before him. Gerson did not succeed in destroying the authority, or at least the popularity of the Roman de la Rose. In 1444, a canon of Lisieux, estienne lecri composed a repertoire du roman de la rose towards the end of the century jean molinet could assert that its sentences were current like proverbs he has given himself the trouble of moralizing the whole book in giving its allegories a religious meaning the nightingale calling to love meant the voice of the preacher the rose meant jesus even in the heyday of the renaissance clément Maraud Considered that the work deserved to be modernized, and Rossard did not consider the figures of Belacueil and Faudangers too worn for use in his verse. End of chapter 8, section 10, read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2021.